0: So in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer states this. He says the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. I think we'd all agree with that. I think we'd all agree that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. See, there's something about being together physically that is utterly irreplaceable. It's utterly irreplaceable. See, arm's-length community is no community at all. Zoom and FaceTime, while helpful tools, miss the mark when it comes to cultivating intimacy and relational depth. By definition, to experience a person or an event virtually, it misses something. Furthermore, physical distance or virtual communication can often lead to relational friction as it's way easier and requires far less courage to ridicule an individual from behind a keyboard than it is in a face-to-face interaction. If you've ever gone to a sporting event or a concert, you know that there's something different to that than watching it on TV or listening to it at home. Physical presence is so crucial to the Christian faith. And this entire series that we've been going through has been about God's desire to dwell with his creation. And last week, we saw how that desire came to its climax through the person and work of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus provides for us both a model and an empowerment as to how we are to live our faith, both together as the family of God and before a watching world. This morning, we're going to look at a passage described by um, theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul as John's version of Jesus' giving of the Great Commission. And so as we open our Bibles to John chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. I am going to pray again. As you know, I pray often before I actually jump into the sermon, and, um, and I think that's okay. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we go through this text this morning, As we we search the scriptures for, for truth, Lord God, for you, I pray that you would draw us near to yourself. Help us to see clearly, Lord God. Help us to love you even more as a result of hearing your word this morning, Father. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let's take a look. Chapter 20, verses 19 and following. And let's look at the first two verses, 19 and 20. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw, saw the Lord. So a couple of things, some context. First, we are post resurrection But it appears as though the only person, if we look at the context of this particular passage, that the only person who has seen the resurrected Christ up until now is Mary Magdalene. And another thing that caught my eye is that the disciples, while fearful, they remained together. Remember what Bonhoeffer said, right? The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. So let's take a look, right? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it was the Sabbath. The disciples were together. The door was locked. Why? For fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews. See, this phrase shows up in two other places in John's Gospel. In John chapter 7, verse 13, it says, people were fearful to speak openly of him, meaning Jesus, and to be fair, Jesus was keeping his identity hidden as well because it wasn't his time. So people were fearful of the Jews during Jesus' ministry because they knew the power that they, that they held. A second time it shows up is in John 19, verse 38, where we see Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea... Grabbing the body of Jesus from Pilate, but he didn't really talk about his belief in Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews. Now, the term Jews in this context is most likely referring to the, the, the religious leaders of the day, not the general population of Jewish people. In other words, this is not an anti-Semitic text. That's not what's going on here. But based on these texts and the story of Jesus, the religious leaders were not ones to be trifled with, considering they were the ones who arrested and delivered Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. This was a powerful group of people, and they were terrified. Their Savior had just been killed a few days prior. They were huddled up together in a room, and they were terrified. They were legitimately scared. And Jesus' disciples are rightfully afraid because they knew full well what their enemies could do to them. They knew. They understood the context. But the text continues. It says this. It says in verse 20, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. This sort of peace that Jesus is pronouncing over them is, is twofold in meaning, right? It's, the first meaning is just it's a standard ancient greeting, just a standard greeting, peace be with you. It's very similar to, to us wishing someone well as they leave or, or saying hello and, and greeting someone as they enter into your home or as you enter into their home. But this statement was also a statement of hope. Drawn from the Hebrew word shalom, which is the sort of peace that is all-encompassing. The sort of peace that we will all one day fully realize when we stand face to face with our Savior. This is the kind of peace that Jesus is speaking over his disciples. Now let's remember, the disciples were hunkered down in a state of panic and fear. And then what happens? Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, they're terrified, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He proves to them that it is really him by showing them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And as a result of this gospel performance by Jesus, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Right? He shows them his hands and his side. They see the gospel up close and personal. They are looking at the man that they saw just a few days prior hanging on a tree, standing in their midst. And what is their response? They rejoice. They rejoice. Because the gospel is alive and well right in front of their face. This is incredible news that we are reading about here. Because they were fearful and the presence of God dispelled their fears. The presence of God dispelled their fears as they saw him face to face. Is this not the case for us? That when we are in the midst of pain and sorrow, when we are fearful of our circumstances, the presence of Jesus becomes our strength. Presence of Jesus becomes our strength. So so I started wrestling with this. What are some things that we are fearful of? Things that are kind of like just enveloping our our world right now. The obvious ones, right? Fearful of COVID, possibly. And and the consequences of, of getting sick. Some of us might be fearful of where our country is heading. Others might be fearful of what your family might think if you decide to stay home on Christmas. There's so much fear right now. And there's fear on, in wherever you look, right? People are either fearful of COVID, they're fearful of the political state of our country, they're fearful of what might happen, they're fearful that we might never get back the things that we've lost over these last nine months. But what happens in this text and what happens in our lives as we confront Jesus, as we look to his word, as we engage in fellowship with one another, fear is translated to joy. Because of the presence of Jesus. Fear is translated to joy because of the presence of Jesus. And we'll see that in just a few minutes, the presence of Jesus by the power of the Spirit is manifested through the community of faith, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. This is where this text is heading. And I love it. I love how in one moment, they're fearful, they're terrified, and they see the gospel. And they rejoice. And they rejoice. Redeemer Fellowship, we possess that good news. We possess the wonders and excellencies and majesty of Christ. We have nothing to be fearful of. And we need to fight that fear. It doesn't mean that fear is not going to come. It doesn't mean that anxiety is not going to to eke its way into our lives. I struggle with those things. I'm not sitting here telling you that every day because of Jesus, I'm just walking on sunshine. right? Like That's not what I'm trying to say right now. Because I have not walked on sunshine perfectly for the last nine months. Ask my wife. Ask my children. I had to apologize to my daughter this morning because I just lost my temper because I wanted to get here earlier than we did, because I was nervous, my anxiety was kind of overtaking me, and I lost it, and I had to apologize, because we're not perfect, but God's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to faithfulness, and how do we exercise faithfulness? By continually fixing our gaze on Jesus, the one with pierced hands and side. That's how we combat this fear that is overwhelming us, And we also can't condemn others for their fear, but rather gently challenge them with the gospel. Love them. Be with them. Sit with them. Walk them through their fears. Listen. Actually, probably listen should be the first thing on that list of things to do when people are going through anxiety and fear and pain and sorrow. Listening. And allowing them to express themselves and gently pointing them back to the cross pointing them back to the one who dispels all fear as we continue to meditate upon the wonder of Jesus, of his cross, of his resurrection, and in this season, his incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right there in their midst, in the middle of their fear and their trembling as they were terrified that the religious leaders were gonna find them and kill them as well. Jesus dwelt among them. Jesus dwelt among them. And so the text goes on in verse 21. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so once again, he pronounces peace, and then he sends them. He sends them. The question that we need to wrestle with as we look at this text, because it says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Remember, R.C. Sproul said this was John's version of the Great Commission. So, So these truths apply to us. But the question we need to wrestle with is how was Jesus sent? How was he sent? And so I kind of traveled through the book of John and just kind of wrapped my mind a little bit around how does John articulate how Jesus was sent? So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, he sent him in the flesh. He sent him in the flesh. And Pete talked about that just the other day, last Sunday. And then in chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, we see the baptism of Jesus. And what happens at Jesus' baptism? But the Holy Spirit rests upon him. So he was sent in the flesh, but he was also sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, and I'm just going to read this to you, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, it says this. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because that will take a long time. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned to them and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and following and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And then he continues calling more disciples as that text continues. So he sent him in the flesh, he sent him in power, and he sent him to make disciples at the wedding in Cana in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 Jesus meets a physical need at that particular event so he was sent to meet the needs of the people and then he was sent as a prophet as you see he enters into the temple and he cleanses the temple and he said don't make my temple my father's house a den of thieves and then he sent him as a savior For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. As the body of Christ, if we are to be sent as the Father sent Jesus, then we are to enter into the lives of others through the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples, to care for the needs of others, to speak out against evil, and to call others to follow Jesus. In the same way the Father sent him, he sends us. He sends us in the flesh. He sends us through the power of the Spirit to make disciples, to meet needs, to proclaim righteousness, and to call people to repentance. That's our job. That's what we're here for. That's what we enlisted in when we bent our knees to King Jesus. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the marks of Jesus' suffering precede him sending his disciples. I just thought that was so interesting. As I was reading the text, he shows them the cost. He shows them right there. He says, I want you to know what you're getting involved in. I want you to know what you're getting involved in. Redeemer Fellowship, do we know what we're getting involved in when we decide to follow Jesus? Do we get it? And if we don't, we need to look to the cross because that's what we're getting involved in. We're getting involved in a life of cross-bearing. And that's a glorious thing. That's a glorious thing. See, these wounds were inflicted upon him so that sinners like you and me might go free. So that sinners like you and me might go free. John Calvin, he says it like this. If any person think it's strange and inconsistent with the glory of Christ that he should bear the marks of his wounds even after his resurrection, let him consider first That Christ rose not so much for himself as for us. And secondly, that whatever contributes to our salvation is glorious to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever contributes to our salvation is glorious to Christ. And so too are the wounds we bear for the sake of the gospel. And if we are to be sent as Jesus was sent, then those wounds and that suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. And so while it might feel as though the world is burning around us, we still have the same calling we've had for the last 2,000 years to proclaim the glories of Christ, regardless of the cost regardless of the cost. And this is what theologians call incarnational mission, that this is what we mean when we describe the mission of God as incarnational. It means that we enter into the sufferings of others. It means that we invite others into our own world. The New Testament identifies hospitality as one of the primary means by which God works in the lives of his people. And to be honest, I'm preaching to myself right now because I struggle with this. Not because I don't want to have people in my home and people in my life, because like all of you, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And I know you're all exhausted. We're exhausted during normal seasons of life, but this particular season has drained us to I don't even know a word to describe it, right? It's just, it's exhausting. But God is still calling us to his mission. God is still calling us to enter into the lives of our family, our neighbors, our friends. With your neighbors, how can you think through and brainstorm ways to cultivate relationships with them, even in the midst of a pandemic? How can you be hospitable and learn the needs of others? I'm not saying you have to invite crowds into your home. I know we have to use wisdom right now. I get that. But we still can be creative. We still can think through how we can care for those around us. We've been doing it as a church. The fact that we've collected over 1,000 pounds of food for the people of Tom's River, what an incredible thing. What a glorious thing that we were able to do through the power of the Spirit as he works through the lives of his people. What a wonderful thing. And for parents, your primary mission is your children. Your primary mission is to teach them the gospel. We were, we were with a couple of friends, and, and we, were, you know, we're, we were safe and all that. And, and we were praying together over the weekend. And my one buddy, he just started praying for all of our children, that they might come to know Jesus. And I just started getting choked up. Because of all the things that are happening in this world, the thing I care about most is that my three kids know Jesus. That's all I care about. And I love all of you, and I want everyone to know Jesus, but those three, man, I just want them, and I can get choked up right now talking about it because that's all I want. And that's all any parent wants. They just want their kids to walk with Jesus. And that's our job as their parents is to teach them the gospel. It's our primary mission. And so we start there. We start with those closest to us. How do we practice hospitality with them? How do we enter into their story? How do we listen to their needs? Are we opening our ears to our kids? I had to listen to my daughter this morning tell me that she was sad that I yelled at her. I had to hear that and I had to apologize to her. Are we listening? Or are we brushing them off? We got to fight that temptation even when we're exhausted. We have to. We have to continue fighting this mission that God has put us on, to love him and to love neighbor. It's that simple. And how we do that is by bearing others' burdens and by proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, by pointing them to the cross and saying, that cross is where Jesus suffered and died so that you might go free. This is is good news. This is good news, and we have to fight that laziness that I'm talking to myself about. I'm not calling you lazy. I'm calling me lazy. You guys are probably much harder workers than I am. But also, we need to fight the fear, because I don't think it's always laziness. I think a lot of times we're scared to step out in faith. We're scared of what others might think. But remember, Jesus is in our midst. Through the power of the Spirit, he indwells us. We don't have to be fearful. Remember what happened with the disciples. They were fearful, and then they rejoiced. They were fearful, and then they rejoiced. And the only thing that changed was the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. And we have him 24-7. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we have been brought into union with Jesus, which means we possess the Spirit of God every single minute of the day. He's with us. Pete read that passage from first from or Second Corinthians, about First Corinthians about how we are the temple and that the Spirit of God lives within us and that wherever we go, Jesus is there. We do not need to be fearful. We need to remember. We need to remind one another of that truth. right? That's why it's so good that we can be together. And we are. We're practicing social distance. We're trying to be careful and utilize wisdom. But we need to be in one another's lives, pointing one another back to Christ, encouraging one another with the good news that Jesus is here. He's in our midst. He's with us. And we need to remember these things. This is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. This is such good news. And this is what we've been entrusted with as followers of Jesus. The text continues, verses 22 and following. It says this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you will withhold forgiveness from any, it is with held and so as i've been saying we do not need to be fearful because in the same way that god's presence through the person of christ was with the disciples we also possess the presence of christ through the third person of the trinity the holy spirit right what does it say in verse 22 it says that jesus breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit this is such an incredible verse Because what John is doing is he's reminding us of another passage in the scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis chapter 2. See, the reason I go back to Genesis 1 through 3 all the time is because the New Testament goes back to Genesis 1 through 3 all the time. And what does it say in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. See, the breath of God is the mark of life. It's the source of life. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus about how it is required that a man be born again. And how is a man born again through the power of the Holy Spirit? So there is the first birth that we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, right? The old creation started with the breath of God and the new creation starts with the breath of God. Do you see how wonderful that is? And then we see... That in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit. And that's what we possess in Christ. We possess life. And our responsibility is to go and proclaim that good news so that others might possess that same incredible, joyful, glorious life that only comes through the person and work of Jesus. What's the point? The peace of God which comes through the presence of God, is the means by which we participate in the life of God and are in turn sent out on mission to live out our faith, bearing the cross and proclaiming the good news of the resurrected King Jesus. It's good news. It's good news. It's such good news. And I know we talk about it week in and week out. And guess what? I'm going to talk about it week in and week out until the day I die. Because that is what this is all about. Nothing else matters when we hold it up to the light of the gospel. Nothing else matters when we hold it up to the light of the gospel. That is what is, stands at the crux of everything. And that is how everything that we do in our lives should flow from that truth. That we belong to Jesus. How we live our lives in our families. How we live our lives at work. How we live our lives as husbands and as wives on the road, in, in, wherever we are, on the internet. It all should flow from the truth of the gospel and the spirit of God that indwells each one of us. And so we can go about our lives and we can live our lives before a watching world praying that they catch a glimpse of what God is like. And we proclaim the resurrected king. We proclaim the resurrected king. The passage closes with a, a little bit of a confusing verse. It says this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you would hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, as we proclaim the good news of King Jesus, people are called to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And, like I said, this verse is confusing. But when we read it in light of the other Great Commission passages in the New Testament, it becomes clearer. See, the spirit filled mission of the church is to pronounce the good news of Christ. And those who hear these words and respond in faith will have their sins forgiven, while those who do not will incur judgment. One pastor, John Piper, he says it like this. When you tell people what I have done, and he's speaking as though Jesus is speaking. When you tell people about what I have done, speaking my word about my work and the power of my spirit, I am the one speaking through you. So that if anyone believes your word, I forgive their sins. And if anyone does not believe your words, I don't forgive them. And since you are my voice and my truth, I speak of you forgiving them and you withholding forgiveness. What's the point? As the spirit-filled witness, as spirit-filled witnesses of Christ, we are called to be the mouthpiece of God called to be the mouthpiece of God, as the prophets were in the Old Testament. And as we warn this world of impending judgment, they will either respond in faith or in unbelief, resulting in forgiveness or judgment. And so when it says, if you forgive the sins of any, as we proclaim this good news, we are speaking the words of God. And it is God who forgives. We don't forgive sins and we don't judge sins in the way God does that's not how that's not what John is getting at here he is saying that we are the mouthpiece of God but this is a glorious thing because what does it mean that we're the mouthpiece of God none other than we are the body of Christ see there is something spiritual about that there's something cosmic about that we are not God by no means There is a creator-creature distinction that has been has so much ink spilt over for the last 2,000 years. We are not God, but we are the body of Christ. And that's a mystery. I don't fully understand it. If I fully understand it, I would explain it to you. But it means that we belong to Jesus, and we are the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. That's what it means. And so as we speak forth good news... People have the, the chance to either repent or they have the chance to turn their back on God. And then God forgives or judges. So that's what's going on in that text. It's a super confusing text, but it's an important one. And it calls us again to mission because right there are consequences of not believing the gospel. There is judgment for those who do not believe the good news of Jesus. And so that should light a fire under us as the church to go and proclaim this good news to others that they might also go free. We're not in charge of salvation by no means, but we can either be used of God or not. That's our choice. Are we gonna be used by God or not? And so he's calling us in this passage as empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to be sent in the same way he was sent by the Father, he sends us in the flesh to make disciples, to call out good, to to, to speak out against unrighteousness and to call people to Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. And so as we close this morning, as followers of Jesus, We are called to live out our faith in the way Jesus did. We are called to an incarnational model of ministry that enters into the world of others that they might catch a glimpse of what God is like. Slick programs aren't going to build the kingdom. Clever presentations and packaging will not work, but cross-shaped love, hospitality, and kingdom proclamation is how this world will come to know Christ how it's going to happen. It's a simple thing, and we overcomplicate it. And I've been struggling with that overcomplication. I've been thinking through all the things that I need to do now, that I'm a, a lead pastor. I have so many things I need to do, but I keep on getting reminded by the scriptures, praise God, that I need to just proclaim Christ and care for people. And that's what we all need to do. That's what we all need to do. So I want to challenge us, Redeemer. I want to challenge us as as we continue living in this mess that we do not forget what we've been called to. We've been called as missionaries, as representatives of Jesus here on earth. We believe that we are called at Redeemer Fellowship to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And we do that when we bear the cross of others and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that all who bend their knee to King Jesus will be forgiven and granted access to God, the one who was made flesh and dwelt among us. I want to read From Philippians chapter 2. Starts like this so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then this is where that incarnational peace jumps in. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our calling. That's our calling. I want to challenge you, because come February, we're going to be jumping into a series on the book of Acts. Acts. We're going to be in that book for, for an extended period of time, for a number of months. But I want to challenge you over the course of the next month or so to read through Luke's gospel. To read through Luke's gospel. And the reason why I want us to read through Luke's gospel is because, what, what first of all, Luke and Acts are actually a two-volume work. It's called Luke-Acts. We're going to be looking at the second volume, the book of Acts. But Luke's gospel is so wonderful because Luke was a doctor and he dealt primarily with he was very very specific and, and very methodical, but a lot of times when you read his gospel, he talks so much about the physical nature. Talks so much about the physical. Even his articulation of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is just a slight difference from Matthew, as he he doesn't talk about the spiritual side of things as much as Matthew does, but he talks about the physical. And I want us to read through that for two reasons. One, to help us have some context for the book of Acts. But two, if we're to be sent as the Father sent Jesus, then we should know how Jesus lived his life. And Luke's gospel has such a beautiful way of telling the story of Jesus and how he lived his life. How not only is he our savior, but he's our example. And so search that book. I'm going to be reading it too over the next month just to kind of wrap my mind around Luke's writing, but specifically to see what is Jesus doing? And I know we've probably, most of us, have read through the Gospels. But again, it never hurts to read it again because the Bible is the sort of book that no matter how many times you pick it up, you're always going to see something a little bit different a little bit new I never I never did a word search on for fear of the Jews and and seeing that it showed up only two other times in the New Testament and it was in John's gospel was just interesting to me it actually shows up in Esther but I don't know what that's about but never here never mind the point is read the book of Luke look at Jesus watch his interactions watch how he lives Watch how he engages with sinners. Watch how he engages with the powers and authorities. Watch how he lives out his ministry. And we'll learn together that as the Father sent him, so he sends us. And we can have front row seats to how Jesus was sent. And then we'll have front row seats as we travel through the book of Acts to see how Jesus sent the disciples. And we're going to see some overlap, I think. Because... We're sent in the same way. We're sent in the same way. To enter into the lives of others. To call people out of sin and darkness. To make disciples. To care for the physical needs. To proclaim the kingdom of God. That's our job, Redeemer. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that was ushered in through the person and work of Jesus. That's what we celebrate. That's why it's so incredible. That's what needs to get us excited. That's the fire that needs to be lit underneath us, that we are the mouthpiece of God, pointing people to Jesus, living out these kingdom callings so that others might know Jesus, so that others might know Jesus, that we would be comforted, that we would experience peace so that we can be sent out. We have peace from God and we go in confidence and in power through the Holy Spirit so that others might also have peace with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this word. I thank you for this time that we were able to spend just searching the scriptures, understanding more so your desire to be with us, Father. And then this this calling that we are to now enter into the lives of others in the same way you entered into our lives. Father, help us, Lord. Help us to be a church, Lord God, that proclaims the glories of your son, Jesus, Lord. That lives out this calling to love you and to love neighbor, Father. To tangibly love those around us, Father. To listen instead of being quick to speak, Father. To use wisdom, Lord. Lord, help us to wrestle with these things as a church. Father, we love you so much, so much we love you, God. We thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, for the incarnation, Lord God. Be with us now, Lord, as we come to your table. Lord, nourish our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.